0: All right, why don't you turn to Nahum chapter 3, please. Nahum chapter 3, we're going to look at verse 19, and the message is entitled, The Point of No Return. The prophet Nahum, a beautiful servant of God, faithful, had delivered a certain uh, message of judgment, and it was sure, it was going to come. This was fulfilled 150 years from the time that they had been visited by the reluctant prophet Jonah, as you know, when we t- touched him and studied him. And the revelation of this prophetic judgment gave about 50 years or so for those who would believe and repent. So God always gives plenty of time before he brings judgment. We've seen this over and over again. Now, the book of Nam contains um, three chapters, a total of 47 verses in our English Bible, The first chapter has 15 verses containing the doom declared. In chapter 2, we have 13 verses also containing the doom described. And in chapter 3, we have 19 verses containing the doom deserved. What we want to do is finish up with the last verse as we look at the concluding summary statement of the condition of Assyria through the city of Nineveh, and it's characterized by three things. Let me read our verse here for us. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? The concluding summary statement of the condition of Assyria through the city of Nineveh consists in three things. First, you have the irreversible condition of Nineveh, the beginning of 19, irreversible condition. Secondly, you have the irresistible celebration over the fall of Nineveh, and then we end up with the irritable affliction to the nations by Nineveh. The prophet begins with the irreversible condition of Nineveh, the beginning of verse 19. Notice the prophet Nahum confirmed the um, condition of Nineveh, that it was beyond hope. Mark it well. Your injury has no healing. Nahum stated the nation was spiritually unhealthy. The word injury has the idea of breaking, fracturing, crushing. Not a good picture. The Old King James translates it bruise. The verb form appears 157 times in the Old Testament. And the word is often used to identify punitive judgment, as in our text here, in context. Now, the injury is personal, and notice, self-inflicted by Nineveh. No one can ever blame God for their condition. No one can ever say, God made me do the evil or made me wicked. It's self-inflicted, whether it be individual or nation. She has been forgiven by God for her sin through the preaching of Jonah. She has decided to turn back to her sin after her repentance through Jonah. And now she has become weak by her sin. It's self-inflicted. Everyone knows that as children there's great potential. And they come into this world with innocence. Not sinlessness, but innocence at first. And as parents we try to mold and shape them and guide them to keep them as innocent as we can and to protect them from that sin nature maturing earlier than it should, especially in the corrupt manner. But when a nation or a person is inclined to this or exposed to things that provoke him, they become more corrupt. Notice Nahum stated the nation was beyond spiritual recovery. The word um, no healing has the idea of being weak, infective, or colorless. Sometimes when there's a wound or some kind of infection, you look upon it and usually if you take care of it in four or five days, you already see it healing. You see it drying up and that. But then there's other injuries or infections or um, something that bites you or something, and instead of getting better, it's still kind of pussy and white, and it's not shrinking. In fact, it's enlarging a little more. Uh, There's discoloration. There's Something's wrong because the normal thing is within a few days. This is the picture here. Um, The root word appears 17 times with this meaning is like the eye becoming weak through old age. Rather than becoming better, it becomes worse. The color is dark, evident of being terminal. Now, they're not dead physically. They're not extinct yet. But they're as good as extinct and dead. The remainder of her time was not Long. It would soon come. The finality would be certain. Notice the prophet Nahum confirmed the condition of Nineveh being beyond hope. So he has stated it. Now he confirms it. Your wound is severe. Nahum stated a second description of the nation's spiritual condition as being unrecoverable. The word wound indicates, once again, her injury. Severe indicates the criticalness of her injury. Weak, feeble, and diseased. You see, Nahum stated this twice for emphasis. Not because he's running out of words. He wants to make sure he fills three chapters. You, as a parent, and I give emphasis to our words, to our children at times as we were raising them or some of you that still have children. When you want to communicate something of urgency or clarity, you say, do you understand me? Yeah. Do you understand me? The second is for emphasis. And you make eye contact because you know the criticalness of it. The confirmation regards the truth about the lost condition of Nineveh. You see, when this statement is made, you have to remember that Nineveh is strong, powerful. There's no one that can stand up to her. This is the deception of man. When you're young, when you've made it in business, you have a big wad in the bank, You're the fine specimen of a man or a woman physically. You can't even imagine yourself broke, ugly, and saggy. It's beyond the possibility. But be patient. It'll come. <laughs> Such was Assyria. Such is every nation such as every man and woman. The confirmation regards the truth about the terminal outcome of her unhealthy condition. God speaks truth even though we cannot believe it so. Even though when we hear it, we say, well, that's, that's somebody else, but I'm different. Not me, I would never walk away from God. I would never go there. Never say never. If by the grace of God, I will never go there. As I abide in him. As I'm sensitive to his conviction, to his reproof, to his discipline. The patience of God with sin should never be misunderstood to mean God is indifferent to sin. Or worse yet, that he approves of it. God had warned the northern kingdom about her idolatry from the division of the kingdom in 931 B.C. under Rehoboam and Jeroboam I, all the way to Hosea, when Syria took Samaria in 722 into captivity under Sennacherib. Now, it took... 211 years God was long suffering for 211 years but that captivity was sure from the first year of warning as from the year that it was taken captive it was just a matter of time and so we have to believe God's word as far fetched and unable to believe it in your intellectual mind of today's Stupidity. God knows the end from the beginning. This principle applies to nations that have um, rejected God and his word. Like all the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, as God told Abraham that he could not and would not give the land until the abomination of the Amorites was fully come 400 years later. The implication being that God had given the land, all the, 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 the Gergeshites, the Amorites, and all, all the ites in that land. A warning in a way that we don't know and we're not told. But by that statement, he gave them 400 years and he would not violate his promise. But once those 400 years took place, he records for us the abomination in Genesis fifteen, thirteen, and 16. And then in Exodus 12, 40, we see the fulfillment in Galatians 3, 17, gives us a commentary on it. So God knows the end from the beginning. He doesn't need to give us all the information. All he has to do, you and your children sometimes, you tell them to do something. They go, why? Never mind, just do it. Right? You're the authority. You know what you want done. You know what needs to be done, right? The lesson from the lesser to the greater. No different. Like Egypt through the Pharaoh that was judged for rejecting the word of God as he sent Moses to deliver the children of Israel. Exodus 4 and 5, a judgment on all the gods of Egypt. In fact, um, Psalm 86, 8 through 9 says, Arise, O God, judge the earth. For you shall inherit all nations. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. That's going to be the final end. Today, NATO, you think they fear God? The United Nothings? I doubt it. You think Obama? Congress? Senate? The majority of politicians fear God? I don't think so. But God says that every knee is going to bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For judgment then, right now, by grace to be saved. The principle applies to the nations that have had the light of the gospel and turn from it also. William Carey took the gospel to India. John Livingston took the gospel to Africa. Hudson Taylor took the gospel to China. England and America have had great revivals through men like George Whitefield, Charles Finley, D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham. There is no excuse. In the history of man. About God's word. You see the entire world stands guilty before God. From conscience creation and the history of the gospel. As Romans 1 and 2 says. No one can say I never heard. I never knew. It's all available and you know before you die. Absolutely. Romans 10.15 says and. How shall they preach unless they are sent? And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tithings of good things. He's quoting Isaiah 52, 7. The gospel, the only thing that can transform our lives through the forgiveness of sins, the only thing that gives us hope, of a life more abundant here on earth in spite of our frailty and our still sinful nature that is ever-present. But by God's grace, He allows us to be able to override that through obedience by the power of the Spirit of God and the Word of God. No other way. This principle also applies to the unsaved individual. Those who have um, politely refused and rejected the gospel You've met some of those. That's fine for you. And, you know, I'm just glad. And, you know, I just, I think you're a model citizen. But, you know, I'm a little different. Those who mocked and ridiculed the gospel. Those who worked to hinder the gospel. It applies to all of them. Ezekiel eighteen thirty two 32 says, For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God, therefore, turn and live. That's God speaking to the sinner. That's the heart of God. This principle equally applies to the saved which have departed from the Lord. Men and women who have been saved by God but become corrupt and false through time. Men and women who have been great examples through many years But now their lives deny Christ. Not their words. Their lives deny the fact that they say they're Christians. I have known individuals as well as families that were born again and came to this church. They sat in the very seats you do. Godly examples, servants of God, used of God tremendously. Today they're in the world. The New Testament names such individuals as a warning to all generations, such as Hymenius, Alexander, who made shipwreck of the faith. So Paul turned them over to Satan. Now listen carefully. You do not turn non-believers over to Satan. They already belong to him. You turn believers who have walked away and refused to repent over to Satan. Timothy is clear, and 1 Corinthians 5.5 5 is clear. Make no mistake of that. They had straight concerning the truth. You have to have know the truth and have the truth to stray from the truth. Saying the resurrection was already passed, overthrowing the faith of some. Overthrowing the faith of some. There's another deception. You become a stumbling block to those who are walking and you overthrow their faith. Those who were born again. Demons departed, loving this present world. You find all these in First Timothy one nineteen through twenty, chapter two or seventeen through eighteen, and Second Timothy and four ten. They're warnings to every generation. Um, the Book of Hebrews is probably one of the most severe warnings to Christians. Listen carefully. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's the Old Testament. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be the thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace, for we know him who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, Saith the Lord again. The Lord will judge his people, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews ten twenty eight 28-31. He's talking to Christians. These were Hebrew Christians who were going back to the law. The lessons from the lesser to the greater. If by the Mosaic law they were stoned by two or three witnesses, how much greater judgment to those who have embraced Christ. So I don't understand when people have a hard time for people to walk away from God. Listen very carefully. Coming to God is supernatural. Walking away from God is natural. Are we clear on that? It's real simple. 2 Peter 2.20 says, For if after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he says, escape. Then he says, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than at the beginning. You can't escape it. Oftentimes, people, when I do conferences, people who have been raised in Calvary Chapels, they say, are you saying you can depart from me? I said, didn't you sit under Chuck? Better yet, haven't you heard the words of Jesus in John 15? The branches and the vine? Have you not read Paul in Colossians and Ephesians? Have you not read Second Peter? Do you not know the Old Testament? Do you not know the New Testament? Why are you shocked? Hmm. You as a parent have great faith and confidence in your children as you raise them. But if they get a wrong, bad influence, the greatest fear comes upon you. That they might forget everything you've taught them and they go the other way it's no different no different at all ladies and gentlemen the um, irreversible condition of Nineveh was no exaggeration None whatsoever this is the summary statement the concluding verdict notice secondly the um, irresistible celebration over the fall of Nineveh comes next The prophet Nahum revealed the hatred of the nations by this statement. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. The Assyrians were proud, arrogant, and insulting to their enemies. And it's recorded for us as Sennacherib sent Rabshakeh to the wall of Jerusalem around 701 B.C., he belittled the king. Listen carefully. Then Rabshakeh said to them, the men on the wall, Say now to Hezekiah, the reigning king of Judah, Thus say the great king, the king of Assyria, The great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? You speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. And in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? That's First Kings 18, 19 through 20. The arrogance, because you have the power, because you can insult, because you can demean. Then comes the mocking to the lions of protections that they had with other nations. In verse 21, he says, Now look, you're trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, because Hezekiah was trusting Egypt to come and help him. On which, if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh like King of Egypt to all who trust in him. It's a backhand. Mockery. Then comes the insult to the living God in verse 22. But if you say to me, We trust in the Lord Yahweh our God, is it not He whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken down and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before the altar in Jerusalem. In other words, the syncretism, the practices of the pagans had been incorporated to the worship of Yahweh. And when Hezekiah led the reformation and took them down, the non-believer thought that they had given up the worship of Yahweh because they associate the pagan sites and practices with Yahweh. That's what's going on in the church today. The church is being culturalized. And we're embracing all this other junk of occult and paganism and everything else into the church and secularism. And we're calling it Christianity. We're even redefining the church, the Christian, and Christianity. And true Christianity is being mocked and ridiculed. Then comes the humiliating of the men by their disadvantage in verse 23 through 25. It says, Now therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able, on your part, to put riders on them. Look, we'll even give you 2,000 horses. Come on, let's see. Show, show us how bad you are. <laughs> how then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots of horses and horsemen? Wow. Have I now come up without the Lord Yahweh against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, "Go up against this land and destroy it." Wow. Powerful. No one can stand against them. They used that for intimidation, psychological warfare. The Assyrians, as you know, were incredibly cruel also. They carried people away with hooks in their lips. Second Chronicles 33:11. As we studied Amos chapter 4-2, he makes this point. They impaled individuals alive, upright in poles. As um, the one found on the monument in Nineveh ascribed to Sennacherib between the years 704 and 681 B.C. in his attack against Judah of 701 that we're quoting here in the days of Hezekiah. It says, quote, Two Assyrian soldiers erect the stake with an impaled naked man besides two others. The heads of these captured men of Lachish Lachish, sagged forward, suggesting they were already dead. Lachish was one of the 46 cities he conquered. End of quote. These are the inscriptions, the records, and the monuments and the carvings that are found throughout Nineveh through the excavation. In the British Museum, is housed the carving from Seneca's palace at Nineveh of Assyria's headhunters. Gather their trophies as two scribes are standing side by side recording the number of the enemy slain from southern Mesopotamia. Heads lie in a heap at their feet, (laughs) counting them out to record their victory. Pretty gruesome. Dismembered and displayed, are the victims of Shalmaneser III, 858 to 824 B.C., in a bronze natural and uh, decorated uh, uh, mural on the wooden gate of the temple or palace at Belawat, near modern Mosul, that we're familiar with because of the War of Iraq. Um, Severed heads hang from the wall of uh, Kalusi. A prisoner whose hands and feet were cut off, which many other hands and feet just littered the ground. This was the mural. This is how they celebrated. Amazing. You see, the Assyrians were terribly unmerciful, breaking the spirits of people also. They would exercise the custom of cross-populating people. So whenever they conquered somebody, if they conquered Pasadena, they would take different groups of people of Pasadena and put them in Monterey Park, Baldwin Park, El Monte, San Jose and they would leave a small fraction in Pasadena and then they would do the same to other captors and, and bring them to Pasadena and everything else so that all these small groups would intermingle. They would forget their language, they would, they would be heartbroken over losing their families, They would assimilate and lose their identity as well as their desire to rebel. It's an excellent tactic in warfare. They were masters. This was the result of the Samaritans. We're going to be in Israel in about ten days. You have Judea. Samaria, Galilee. To go up north, you have to go through Samaria, which are half Jew, half Gentiles, which they, the Jew hated, the result of the Assyrian cross-population. So when a Jew would go up north, he would either go up the Via Maris, up the Mediterranean, or cross over Jordan and go up the King's Highway. If he went up the King's Highway or the Via Maris, when he crossed it back into Galilee, when he got north, he would shake the dust off his clothes just in case he has some Gentile soil on him. You understand? Hatred was incredible. You see, the prophet Nahum revealed, notice the happy celebration by the nations over the destruction of Nineveh by the very same statement. First, it, it implies the hatred for them. Now, It's the celebration. Listen to the words. And all who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. Clapping is a demonstration of joyous celebration, as you know. By clapping, a person is responding to something occurring or having taken place. In Psalm 47, 1, in rejoicing over God, he says, Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. Because we give God honor, we celebrate. By clapping, a person is demonstrating pleasure and delight in something, as in response to a play or the presence of a person of honor or dignity. Like Isaiah declared the rejoicing of nature over God's deliverance of his people. Listen to Isaiah 55:12. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace, the mountains and the hills. Shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Nature rejoices over God's deliverance. Clapping can also be an action of joyous celebration over the calamity, punishment, or vengeance upon another, such as our text here in context. That's what it indicates. Just like Job declared about the rich man who did not believe in God. Job 27:23 says, Men shall clap their hands at him and shall hiss him out of his place. Hissing was a, a, an action of disdain. Shh, like boo. Same thing. Like Jeremiah declared about Jerusalem for turning her back on God. In Lamentations 2.15, it says, All who pass by clap their hands at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that is called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? After God destroyed it through the three sieges of Babylon, people walked by, saw the rubble. They just hiss and they clap and shaking their head. Bunch of dummies. Can't believe them. Turned their back on their God. Wow. But joyously. Joy, the people of the nations would rejoice over the downfall of Nineveh now. And Assyria. All who heard the news, then they would clap their hands in joy and delight over the destruction of Nineveh. Judah would be the first. We've mentioned this in chapter 1, verse 15. Listen. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feasts, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He utterly is cut off. So the good news, Judah's going to be the first. They get relief now. They're able to do in those six years their feasts and their holidays and everything. From 612 to 606, the first siege by Babylon. But notice, no one would lament for her nor attempt to comfort her either. It says, and it shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Two rhetorical questions. No one is the only correct answer to these two rhetorical questions. There's no other possible answer. No one will be her. No one will seek to comfort her. Why? Because they are glad judgment has come. It's about time. Wow. You know, when they hung Saddam Hussein in Baghdad, on the gallows, and his head came off. There was a great joyous satisfaction and celebration of gunfire in Baghdad and the sending of text messages to all the relatives and friends who had suffered the loss of family members and suffered under the cruel, barbaric hand of Saddam and his sons. Nobody was shedding a tear at all. Human nature is very dark, ladies and gentlemen, especially when it has been offended, irritated, humiliated, or made to suffer. And revenge is possible or has taken place. Men have hospitalized other men just because of nasty words being exchanged. Men have uh, beat women just to instill fear and to dominate them. Men fight over women to vent their anger of rejection, even kill. Men and women kill to possess the money and possession of others. And it doesn't have to be that much. God said this about man in Genesis 6 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of the heart was only evil. Continually. That's God's concluding statement about the human race. Continually. It is by God's grace that you are able to live with some form of sanity and order and godly fear. The grace of God. You and I. It came through the gospel. Through a decision you and I made. And as we abide in Christ... And trust him for our lives. There's a sense of satisfaction in knowing evil is um, restrained or removed. The apprehension of a rapist and a pedophile and their conviction gives great relief to society. At least it did in the past. The removal of corrupt politicians taking advantage of taxpayers is pleasing the people. The exposure of an adulterer vindicates the innocent mate, giving a sense of justice. The abuse or theft against an elderly person by caretakers or family members brings a sense of outrage and disgust but a satisfying justice by their prosecution. Yet as Christians, though we equally long for justice, as we've described. We're not to rejoice in the same way as unbelievers. We want to do good. We want to see evil people arrested, put in jail. But our attitude and response is a little different. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your wrath. So in other words, I am to be righteously angry at the evil, the wickedness that goes on. But... I'm not to allow that to contaminate me and to make me to always be angry and think evil of people all the time. That becomes sin to me. As a non believer, you don't have control. It taints you. As a believer, you have a filter, the power of God's word and his Holy Spirit to bring your thoughts into captivity, to put on the armor of God, to do good warfare. To put on the mind of Christ. Romans twelve, nineteen says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Because there are some things that we will never be able to rectify or get justice here. We leave it in God's hands. So it's not a smack of the lips you're gonna get it sucker. But I understand that God will be just at the end. And I also sense the absolute horror of that person who is so much in darkness of their lostness. By their own doing and everything else, but nevertheless, every person who dies without Christ enters eternity, eternally separated from God. The nations under the times of the Gentile, which began with the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, all rejoice over the fall of the preceding ruling empires, as you know. Babylon rejoiced over the fall of Judah through the three sieges. Medo-Persia rejoiced over the fall of Babylon. Greece rejoices over the fall of Persia. And Rome rejoiced over the fall of Greece. And so on it goes in the human world. Proverbs 5.22 says, His own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the course of his sin. Sin is enticing. Sin is deceiving. Sin is destructive. And people think they got a control of it. They've got it wired. They've got everything covered. And all of a sudden, it slays them. Sin kills. The wages of sin is death, Paul says in Romans. There is no exception to it. You see, the irresistible celebration over the fall of Nineveh was to be intoxicating. Third comes the uh, irritable affliction to the nations by Nineveh. Notice the prophet Nahum revealed the evil influence and effect of Assyria over the vast territory by her world power. He says, for upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? Kind of rings uh, Genesis 6, 5. The heart of man is evil continually, Mm -hmm. right? Constantly. Assyria is located in the north Mesopotamia. And um, it spans four countries. In Syria, it extends west to the Euphrates River. In Turkey... It extends north to Haran and Edessa in Diyarbakir in the lake called Van. In Iran, it extends east to the lake um, Urmi. And in Iraq, it extends to about 100 miles south of Kirkirk, which is familiar to us because of the war. This is the Assyrian heartland from which so much of the ancient Near East came to be controlled. A vast area. They affected so many people. Two great rivers, as you know, ran through Assyria, the river Tigris and Euphrates, and many lesser ones, um, the most important of which being the upper Zab and the lower Zab, both tributaries to the Tigris. Strategically, surrounding the Tigris and the two Zabs are the Assyrian cities of Nineveh, Asher, Arbel, Nimrod, and Arapka. Very strategic. Water source, roads, mountains behind you. That's how you look when you build cities. Water and roads and protection. Now the north, to the north and the east of Assyria lie the Taurus and Sagros Mountains and to the west, the south, lies um, great low limestone plateaus. At the southern end of Assyria, the gravel plains give way to alluvial deposits by the Tigris. Further south, there is insufficient rainfall. For agriculture without irrigation, these two features create geographical boundaries uh, between Assyria and the neighboring land south, which is Iraq. And so this gives you the parameters, the delineation of that great mass of territory. This was uh, the vast area Assyria had executed her evil power and destruction by this statement, for upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually, therefore God would do the same to her. Wow. See, that's the thought that never enters the heart and the mind of the person who's in power. They believe they're always going to be in power. Boxers are the same way. Every dog has his day, <laughs> and it's time. The Lord has given a command concerning you, he says. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer, Nahum 1.14. Now when he declared that, they were in power. You think they believed that? No way. For the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He's utterly cut off. Nahum 1.15 Behold I am against you says the Lord of hosts the captain of the armies of heaven I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more Nahum 2.13 and there's more but that should be sufficient at that time they were top dogs they were in power what Nahum was declaring this guy's crazy. He's been on the sun too long. He's one of those crazy Jews. You know what I mean? You they think they're prophets, all of them. Wow. The prophet Nahum revealed the immense and incredible suffering at the hand of the Assyrian by the second Assyrian empire, which the Bible really records for us. Upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually. It began with Tilgath-Pileser III, 745 to 727 BC. He invaded Syria and in the north of Israel. It passed on to Shalmaneser, besieging Samaria, and he took Hoshia captive. It went to Sargon III, destroyed Samaria, and subjected Babylon, not Nebuchadnezzar, but nabopolassar before him. It went to Sennacherib, who conquered what they call Palestine, but it's the land of Israel, and destroyed Babylon. It went to Esarhaddon, who conquered Egypt. It went to Ashurbanipal, who took Babylon from his brother, and he took Manasseh captive to Babylon, establishing the greatest library of ancient times of 20,000 volumes. The Assyrian Empire began to disintegrate around six twenty-six BC. It was destroyed in six twelve by the reigning king Ashur Ubalit II. Six twelve. One after the other. They ruled as lords. They did what they wanted. They had compassion on no one. Wow. The record of the events is preserved in one of Babylonian cylinders and chronicles at the British Museum. So complete was the destruction of the city of Nineveh that it was thought to be a myth and never existed for 2,000 years until the discovery in 1842 by Laird and Boda, archaeological guys. And Alexander the Great marched by it in 331, and... In, um, No evidence of her ever existed. Gone. Nahum therefore mentions the destruction of Noaman. If you notice in chapter 3 verse 8. And that destruction came by the hand of Assyria by the way. The famous capital of upper Egypt. The the city of Thebes. We've gone to Egypt many times before and we've been through all those cities. And um, and he asked if they were better than Noaman or thieves, better fortified to avoid the destruction. Now he's talking to them who God used to destroy, thieves. And you know, the upper city and capital here of Egypt, thieves. It had a desert on both sides. Allies north and south to protect her. The Great Nile? Who can take us? Assyria. (laughs) We're constantly having a lot of scrimmages right now between Russian jets that are flying real close to our ships to provoke us. We have turned Russian planes and ships away the last five years from our shores, though you don't know that. (laughs) God is working, ladies and gentlemen. In the world. He's still judging nations. In 701 BC, Sennacherib conquered Noaman. In 671 BC, Esarhaddon conquered it. In 663, Ashurbanipal conquered it, overthrew the city in 665, 666. In the ascription of Ashurbanipal found in the ruins of uh, Kuyung Duke. In 1878, the king himself tells of the capture of thieves. The records are undisputable. They're all over. We have them. When you think of a a barbaric, inhumane, or even a satanic nation who has afflicted such pain on both Jew and Christian, the one that has to come to your mind is, Nazi Germany of Adolf Hitler. He had a lot to do with the occult, satanic stuff. If you read the history, his second hand man, his right hand man. God mentioned sorcery twice of Nineveh. There are many people in our government who seek the occult. Have in the past, do in the present. In the White House, in Congress and other places. America is no different. We're all fallen individuals, drunken with power. Edmund Burke said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Well, it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't affect me. I don't really care. Really? Hmm. The warning signs of a decaying nation are many, but let me give you some. The dishonesty and propaganda of political and national leaders. The decriminalizing of the law to adapt it to the degenerating society. used to find you have just seeds of marijuana, you went to jail. It was a felony. Now you get a ticket. Even up to certain ounces, right? So you bring down the law so you don't punish people, right? the indoctrination with the um, national agenda through the educational institutions for a greater national authority in order to nullify and destroy the authority of people and parents, the confusion and blurring of clear and distinct differences between male and female, the evidence of chaotic insufficiency of government in in order to destroy the economy of the nation, all of these and many, many more. The greatest one is that the woman has been put in the job market and she's abandoned the home of raising her children. That is the nucleus of society. And that has been our downfall. Proverbs nine two says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. America is groaning, ladies and gentlemen. The suffering and atrocities committed by a nation towards other nations result in several things without exception. These are not exhaustive, but there's some. The nations inflicted or or afflicted and made to suffer will hate the nation in power. The nations being afflicted and made to suffer will be looking for the day to get even and to bring vengeance. The nations in the day of vengeance will do as and be as ruthless, if not worse, than the nation did to them. Proverbs 11.10 says, When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish... There is jubilation. God is the ultimate. The ultimate. Judge of the nations. Now. And in the future. Ladies and gentlemen. At the present. Letting them reap. To what they have sown. Listen to Psalm 915. The nations have sunk down. In the pit which they made. In 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 the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. At the second coming, defeating them. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with, in which should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fears and the wrath of Almighty God. Revelation 19.15. Then at the setting up of the millennial kingdom, he'll prohibit some of those nations from entering. Matthew twenty five, thirty-two. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. God sits in the heavens, ladies and gentlemen. He rules. He is not biting his nails. We're right on schedule. I just don't like the schedule. The irritable affliction to the nations by Nineveh was devastation. And so, here we have the concluding summary statement of the condition of Assyria through the city of Nineveh. The irreversible condition of Nineveh was no exaggeration. The irresistible celebration over the fall of Nineveh was intoxication. And the irritable affliction to the nations by Nineveh was devastation. The same thing that would come to her. No different. It is really a sad day when God says, you've crossed that line. There isn't a thing I can do or will do. All that awaits you is judgment, nation or individual. Both are warned. May God have mercy on us and our nation. Lord, thank you for your grace and love your goodness. Deal with our hearts, and we thank you for your mercy and grace. We pray you would have us to be an example and a tower of light to proclaim and warn people Of your judgment that is coming, Lord. And that you would use us to pull people out of the fire. Lord, we love you. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you believe that Jesus Christ is God who became man and died for your sins and paid that price on the cross for you, just as he said, then the Bible says you can call upon him and be saved. You must make that choice. No one can make it for you. He who has a son has life. He who has not the son has not life. And the wrath of God abides in him. Maybe you're over the internet. Or over the radio right now. Right where you sit, you can accept him right now. This is your prayer of repentance. And God's going to forgive you. And give you a brand new heart. And make you a son or daughter of Jesus Christ. This is your prayer. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.